This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Charles Baxter, author of five novels, five short story collections, three collections of poetry, and two books of essays on fiction. His novel, The Feast of Love, was nominated for a National Book Award. His most recent story collection is called There's Something I Want You to Do. Baxter is known, among other things, for his astute understanding of human behavior and emotion. We began the interview discussing if he was an observer as a child. Always, always. No, I was, I was kind of a shy kid, and I had parents. How do I put this? My parents were tricky. They were, it was tricky being around them, and so I became a really good observer. Uh, I think therapists, or at least my therapist, calls this hypervigilance, and hypervigilance is when you're watching everybody very carefully because you're afraid of what they're going to do. In addition to fiction and novels and short stories, you also write a lot of essays about writing. How did you first get into that, and what is your process? Because it seems like it's both when you're writing about writing, you're writing about writing, but you're also just writing about humans. Well, first of all, I never had classes in creative writing. Not really. I had one as an undergraduate, but that was it. And then slowly but surely, when I started writing and publishing, I was being asked to teach writing classes and to teach workshops. And I didn't have the ghost of a clue how to do it. I didn't know what you were supposed to do in a workshop, and I didn't know how to teach anybody the nuts and bolts of setting up a scene or the use of a person or present versus past tense. So I had to teach myself all that. And it was around this time that I was asked to teach at the Warren Wilson Low Residency MFA program, where uh, I was asked to give lectures down there. And I thought, what on God's green earth am I going to talk about? So I, I had to retool my brain a little bit so that I could teach myself and teach these others about this process about which I knew nothing except what I was able to do practically as a writer. And I just found after a while that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed thinking about it. I enjoyed finding ways of talking about writing that were not abstract, that were practical, and that were related to the way in which we actually live our lives day to day, the way we gossip or tell each other stories about what's happened or in the way that stories get told in the newspaper and the way that people avoid matters that they can't talk about, all of those things. I just thought writing is not just about writing. It's about what people do and the way they think and talk. And I tried to get that into my craft essay. Let's talk about There's Something I Want You to Do. This book has 11 stories, and they are linked. They are linked thematically. They are linked with some common characters. They almost exclusively take place in Minneapolis, where you live. And it's sort of separated into two halves, where the first half are more virtues. They're called bravery, loyalty, chastity, charity, and forbearance. 
And then vices, lust, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and vanity. And then there's a coda at the end. So because this seems like a very highly structured piece of work, because you have characters reappearing and you're talking about very specific qualities, how did you map this out? Or did you? I did not. The creation of that book was somewhat haphazard. I was in a dry spell. I was having terrible troubles getting started on a new book. So I began to go through all my old papers, and I found a story that I had set aside 35 years ago. This is how old it was. It was typed. And I picked it up, and I thought, oh, I think I know how to finish this story. And it was called Bravery. And it occurred to me at that point that maybe I could write a book about virtues, not moralizing, not preaching, just stories with the names of virtues and virtues somehow figuring in. And I sent an email to my editor saying, what would you think about a book called The Virtues? And he wrote back and said, well, that's okay, but where are the vices? And that made me think that maybe I could do a kind of decalogue without without any moralizing, without any preaching. Because I think the moral side of people's behavior is, can be interesting, even in its, its absence. So slowly but surely, not being at all sure that I could do such a book, I began writing stories about the virtues. And I read one of them at Penn State Erie, and it was a virtue. And I told these kids in the audience that I was going to start work on the vices. And a guy in the audience said, are you going to have the same characters in the vices that you had in the virtues? And there was this long silence. And I said, I hadn't thought of that. That's a great idea. So that's what I did. And I also began to think that I should have a request moment in every one of the stories in which one character would say to another, you know, there's something I want you to do. So that's kind of haphazardly how the book began to form itself. Basically, your editor and this person in the audience helped you sort of form maybe the backbones of this book, which I think is interesting because so many people think writers just go in their little hovel and write by themselves. And so there's a real collaboration just in the beginning of this book. Can you talk about that? I think when you're really writing well, you're open to everything. I I think suggestions that people make, I mean, certainly much of the time you're going to ignore them, but sometimes somebody might say something or do something that you remember and you think, oh, I want that to go into the book. I always advise myself, just as I advise others, when, when you're really writing, you should keep a notebook around because when you're doing the dishes or when you're driving or cleaning up the house, you may get ideas that work and somebody may suggest something to you and you think, yeah, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Things fall into place if you just remain open and, what is the word I want? Porous. You know, if you're porous and you let things flow into you, it all becomes a gift. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Charles Baxter, author of the short story collection, There's Something I Want You to Do. So you were saying earlier that you wanted to form these books, not just about virtues and vice, but around a request moment. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that means to you? Well, as a boy, I had a very bossy mother. We lived out, it wasn't a farm exactly, but we were out in the middle of nowhere. And the word chores, which nobody uses, nobody uses that word anymore, I don't think. But in farm communities, the word chores is a very common noun. And I had them, and all the kids I went to school with had them. You have chores to do. And my mother used to say almost as soon as I got home from school, there's something I want you to do, she would say to me. So that was a kind of mantra of my childhood. And then the calendar pages fall from the wall, and I found myself at a local production of Hamlet. And one of the things that I noticed about that play is that the dramatic action gets started because the ghost of Hamlet's father says to him when he appears, there's something I want you to do. And then, at least I think it was after that, I saw or read King Lear, and in that play, in the first act, Lear turns to his three daughters and says, there's something I want you to do. I want you to tell me how much you love me. And depending on what you say, I'll parcel out my land. And I thought I had made a great discovery for myself, which was that if I wanted to get a story going, I needed to have one character say to another, there's something I want you to do. And and the, in some sense, the worse the request, the more onerous or criminal it it is, the more interesting it gets, because it, it sheds light on the obligation that one person feels to another. In both Hamlet and King Lear, the request is being made by a parent to a child, but it can be from one friend to another, one friend who has an obligation to another, and you know the severity of it increases the interest of the story. If, if I say to you, Mitzi, I'm really thirsty, could you bring me a glass of water? I mean, that's, that's interesting, but it's not very dramatic. But if I say, you know, there's a dog down at the end of the block that's been soiling my lawn. I don't know. Would you do me a favor, please, and uh, get rid of that dog somehow? I mean, that that feels like a story, maybe a terrible story, but it feels like a story. And I thought requests are often somehow at the basis, kind of a cornerstone of a lot of narratives. And so I put a request into, I think it turns up in every one of the stories in that book. 
I found the virtues harder to write than the vices. I, that probably says a lot about me. I don't, I don't know. But they all fell into place. The hardest one to write, without any question, was chastity. I wanted in that story to write about irony. Uh, I think David Foster Wallace said somewhere that irony is killing us. And sometimes I think that that's exactly right, that there's too much irony around. And I wanted to write a story about someone who uses irony protectively. And I think this turns up in the, in fact, I know it turns up in the story, that irony is the new chastity. But that that story just cost me months and months of work. I'm proud of it. Less than half of what I wrote for that story is actually in the book. Basically, Chastity is a story told in third person, and it's close to a, a, a character named Benny Takamitsu. And so he wakes up one morning and he hears screaming um, out on the street, and he doesn't go see what it is, but he finds a piece of red hair out in the street that he just keeps. And then later he's out for a walk and he sees a woman on a bridge who's basically, he thinks she's about to jump in and commit suicide, and he calls her off the bridge and talks to her and gets her to come off the bridge, and then he falls for her and they have a relationship, a long relationship, and it turns out that she's a stand-up comedian and we're never really sure if she was going to really jump or not, or if it was just part of the way that she sees the world. And it's really about their relationship, him trying to connect with this person who has so many walls up. They eventually have a child, and she dies, and yeah. he's left. Yeah. Uh, among the scenes that are no longer in the story anymore is one between Benny and his mother, Benny's mother has asked him to go over to the house to, for a visit. She hasn't said why. So he goes over there on a Saturday morning, and she's doing yoga out in the backyard. She's smoking cigarettes while she does yoga, so she's in warrior pose and a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And he goes to the backyard and... and Eventually, they start talking, and she says, there's something I want you to do. And he says, what is that? And she says, I want you to stop loitering through your life. I want you to, to meet a woman and get married and have children. She says, I, I, I want to have grandchildren. I'm tired of waiting. She gets very vehement on the subject. And that's the scene that immediately precedes the one in which Benny finds Sarah out on the bridge. It's as if he's under orders from his mother to meet somebody and to get serious about her and to have children. But I took all that out. I took that dialogue with his mother out. I thought the story has to survive without that. There's a coldness to Sarah and Benny. It's like he loves her enough for both of them. Mm -hmm. But she has some very strict rules. She won't kiss him and then she goes and does comedy and talks about him in the in the comedy and basically reveals that she's pregnant in the comedy mm -hmm. so she obviously can't really have an emotional truth with him which is exactly how she found him so it's not like she's changing that much no um it's his own journey of realization of what's before him versus maybe what he really wants right and one of the things you do in the story, though, is before the scene where she is in in the club telling him 
that she's pregnant is you have this foreshadowing moment. Maybe it's about halfway through where the narrative kind of stops and you have this small paragraph mm-hmm. um, where you mention that they have a kid and he's looking into the kid's face and he sees the mom there. And then you just go on. Mm-hmm. So I'm just sort of curious about this choice, um, this craft choice when you do something foreshadowing that takes you out of the moment and then brings you back in the moment. What, what you try to achieve with that and why you chose that. I didn't want the reader to think um, that the story was about whether they would have children. Uh, I I wanted to set that aside. And I also like stories that try to hold two and sometimes three temporal eras or planes uh, next to each other. Alice Monroe does this more beautifully than I ever can, but she, Alice Monroe will write a story in which what's going on now and what went on then are held next to each other. So I thought uh, I had to let the reader know that their relationship was going to go far enough so that it would result in uh, a child or children. And in a sense, not to keep your eye on that, but to keep your eye instead on what's developing between those two, between Benny and Sarah, and how it's developing, if anything is. I I think something is, but it's not quite what he expects it to be. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Charles Baxter, author of the short story collection, There's Something I Want You to Do. One of the things that you bring up twice in the story, Chastity, is the concept of grieving, although you bring it up in two different ways. One is the concept of grieving while someone is still alive. Mm -hmm. And then later, when she actually died, there's another line about him grieving for her. So I was very intrigued by the concept of grieving while, while alive and what you were thinking about and what that meant to you. What it means is... You love somebody who is not yours and who somehow is always wiggling out of your grasp. And when that's true, I think you're in a position of grieving in a way that the the person has already, even though she or he is in front of you, has already slipped away somehow. In the case of Sarah, it's not clear that she died in that car accident entirely by accident. She wasn't wearing her seatbelt. And there's a little bit of a suspicion that maybe it was not an accidental accident. Anyway, the the point is that in, in the relationships that we have, in the love relationships we have, sometimes somebody whom you love doesn't love you as much as you love them. And there can be a kind of grief in that. Benny is one of the characters that actually uh, appears in a few of these stories. What was it about him that he kept coming back to you? Oh, he's a he's an affable guy. Uh, I I I end up writing people like this guys often who are sort of half awake but half asleep in their own in their own lives 
you know, we were talking earlier about characters who are good noticers. I think it's often good to have characters who have a zone of ignorance. And Benny has a zone of ignorance that's, I won't say it's huge, but there are things that he just doesn't pay attention to or for one reason or another can't pay attention to. And I like characters like that. When you were having some of these characters repeat, were you looking at all for patterns? Were you trying to have them appear in a story that was a vice and a virtue that you thought were opposite of each other? I didn't go through it that analytically to look because I've only read it once, but is that something you thought about? I did. I worried terribly that I would make the patterns too obvious. So if there's a pattern, I tried to put it right below the surface where the reader might notice it on the second or third reading, but on the first reading of the book probably wouldn't. Uh, But they're there. They're planted, all right, but they're planted so I hope you don't really see them or so that they don't So it doesn't feel like an elbow in your ribs. Well, it's also an insurance policy that your book doesn't end up in the thrift store. (laughs) Well, I hope so. (laughs) You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Charles Baxter, author of the short story collection, There's Something I Want You to Do. Tell me a little bit about your influences. I know you've been a reader for most of your life, but I'm wondering if you can read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you. I'd be happy to. You know, I like like many writers, I've had many, many influences. Um, the the Rush, the Russians and American writers. But I thought, in answer to this question, that I I would name a, a writer of uh, the French novelist Michel Tournier and his book The Ogre which has been a big influence on me uh, just an amazing novel about World War II and somebody who is in it who gets caught up in it this is from Uh, the ogre, and the narrator is speaking about a friend. In fact, it seems to me he's been 36 years old all the 10 years I've known him, and that he was probably 36 before that, ever since he was born, very likely. Only up until now, he has been too young for it, just as from now on, and increasingly from year to year, he will be too old. Every man must, throughout his life, have an essential age that he aspires to till he reaches it and clings to after he's passed it. Bertrand has always been essentially 60, and all his life, Claude, or it should be Claude, will be a young fellow of 17. As for me, my eternity sets an impassable distance between me and the tragedy of growing old. And I look on at the ebb and flow of generations with detachment, tinged with melancholy, as a boulder in a forest may watch the comings and goings of the season. I love that passage. And uh, mostly because I think it's true. I think there's some people who 
um, seem perpetually 36 years old, no, no matter how old they are. People who, in their old age, seem to be like adolescents somehow, as if they never grew up. And because it, this book, The Ogre, just keeps, I won't say revealing, but there are passages like that all the way through where you have a feeling of recognition and you just think, yes, that's exactly right. So, And, and they're very brave. So the bravery of this writing moved me and the truthfulness of it too. Um, the, the passages in this book don't seem made up. They seem as if they came from deep experience. How about if you can read a passage from something you wrote? It could be something that was hard to write or something that changed a lot from the first draft or something you succeeded at. I'll read um, from uh, a novel of mine, my first novel. And the scene takes place outdoors in the twilight. And the character Hugh has been setting off fireworks and he looks across his backyard, and this is what he sees. This paragraph, which is quite short, cost me about a week of work. There's Mr. and Mrs. McDermott, Tina says, pointing to Hugh's neighbors, who stand together, their hands clasped, behind where Simon is sitting with Noah. In the evening light, Hugh can see almost no distinct features of their faces or the rest of their bodies. And with his vision of them obscured by smoke and darkness, the generalized outline of the man's shoulders and the curve of the woman's hair and even the shy way they hold hands summon before him the presence of his parents, almost invisible, withdrawn. For a moment, they are his parents. And when Mrs. McDermott waves, using all the fingers of her right hand, Hugh lets out an abrupt, involuntary, oh. Tell me a little bit more about this. It was so early in my writing life, I had a lot of trouble staging scenes. If I had more than two people in the scene, I, it was, I, I, I didn't exactly know where to place them on the stage. This person goes there, this person goes here, this character goes somewhere else. And it was hard for me to keep track of how much light there was in the scene and what the feeling tone was. And I I had wanted so badly to write a scene in which a guy in the dim light looks over at an old couple and for a moment mistakes them for his parents who are no longer living, and I just didn't know how to write the scene. I didn't know where to put the characters or how to do it, and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I'm not saying it's a great paragraph. I, I, I just remember struggling over it terribly and finally feeling that if it wasn't perfect, at least it was fairly close to what I had wanted to do. Where do you write? I write in my study, sometimes I I take the laptop and move around the house. 
I used to write always in front of a window that faced east because I liked the morning light, and I found that it helped me. But now I can write almost anywhere as long as there are windows and natural light. I, I've tried, but I cannot write in a room without windows. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Here in Minnesota, I go to northern Minnesota along the shore of Lake Superior, which is our great inland sea. And I go for hikes up there along the Superior hiking trail. I I need to get away from screens. I think we all need to get away from screens. And to break that addiction, I do it um, hiking. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Sometimes nobody. Sometimes to writer friends, particularly if I need help. Um, My book has some acknowledgments at the end, including writers who have also taught at, at Warren Wilson. The more troubled I am by a story, the more people I'll show it to. But occasionally I will finish a story and be so proud of it that I don't want suggestions from anybody. I, I just want their praise. That's all I care about. How have you dealt with rejection? Beer and pizza. And what is your favorite word? Agreeable. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Charles Baxter, author of the short story collection, There's Something I Want You to Do. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.